Well, good morning, Covenant Baptist Church. If you're able, please open your Bibles once more to the book of Jude as we continue our study. Last time we were in the book of Jude together, we looked at that prophecy uttered by the mouth of Enoch, the seventh from Adam, where he talked about the Lord coming with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. We made special notice of the ungodly men who Jude has in context here being those false teachers who had crept into the church. We've been discussing them throughout this short yet powerful book. Today we're going to be looking at three verses, Jude 17, 18, and 19. If you're keeping an outline, you can keep it in three headings for these three verses. Heading number one for verse 17 is the call. Heading number two for verse 18 is the claim. And heading number three for verse 19 is the counterfeit. So we have the call, we have the claim, and we have the counterfeit. All of this covering these three verses from Jude. I trust you have Jude opened with your finger on verse 17, so if you're able, read with me. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let us ask him to help us one more time in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us now to understand your word as you have delivered it to us and prepared it for us this morning. May you give us insight and wisdom and most of all humility to not only understand what you have preserved for our hearing and our instruction, but humility that we may trust and obey it. And in this case, be warned. Lord, we ask that you would help us because we need your help. And we trust that you will give it to us in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we all say, Amen. Well, how precious is God's Word. Amen. His Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We sang it this morning in To God Be the Glory, verse 3. Great things He has taught us. Indeed, the Lord has taught us great things. And how much is set in the book of Genesis to prepare us for the rest of the revelation that follows. As the catechism that my children and we go through as a family, Milk for Little Ones, which again I commend to all of us who are instructing our children in family worship every week. Who wrote the Bible? Answer, holy men who were carried or moved along or inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
what we call the Bible, that 66 books inspired by the Holy Spirit, who is truly the one divine author of all of Scripture. Lots of men were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write Scripture, but it is one divine author, the Holy Spirit, who inspired it all. Beginning with Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Oh, how the men this week in our study of impassibility in our small groups were talking about how that creator-creature distinction is prevalent and obvious from the very first verse of the Bible. God not only teaches us about himself, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but also teaches us the way of salvation and teaches us how we ought to live in light of our Savior who is the way of salvation, who gave his life for us. Brothers and sisters, I know, you know, as well as I do, that we are weak, and that we are fickle, that we are often unfaithful. And we need to be called to remember. Remember what God has written for us and for our instruction. Not only to show us who he is, And to remind us who we are apart from him. But to remind us who we are in Christ. And also to protect us from this fallen world. For there are many thorns and thistles that have grown around us. And can still catch us and cut us even today as believers. Amen. So with that in mind, I believe that Jude has prepared for us. More importantly, I can say the Holy Spirit has prepared for us through Jude this warning in light of what he has said thus far in his epistle. So consider verse 17 in light of all those things. Jude says, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this really is the call. This is the preface to the testimony which will follow. The call. Jude is giving a command here. He's telling us, but you. But you. Why but you? Well, because he just got done speaking of this prophecy from Enoch, remember? where he says that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment. This is in context of all that precedes. Again, that there are these ungodly men who had crept into the church and were teaching their own fancies. Were claiming to be given by God to the church to teach and to instruct. And yet, what do they do in verse 4? They turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. That is, sexual immorality. They twist the grace of God into a license so that they can continue to feed on the flock instead of feeding the flock. And in the process, by doing this unthinkable thing, they are denying the only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so when Jude says here, but you, really all of this is in view, but you, brothers and sisters, and that's what follows. He says, beloved. But you, beloved, those who are the 
called. I refer back to verse 1. You who are the called, the beloved in God the Father and kept for Christ Jesus, the ones who receive mercy and peace and love wave after wave after wave from our Father who cares for us. This is the you. Is this you sitting in hearing of this word today? But you, beloved, loved by the Father, and certainly loved by Jude, those who he cares for, those who he is instructing. Again, we talked about in the introduction to this epistle that it was probably a circular letter that did circle We don't know the exact congregation that this was written to, but it is very likely that Jude, the half-brother of our Lord, as we discussed in the introduction, is most likely writing to a congregation first as a pastor, as a shepherd, and then this letter circulates. And so when Jude writes, Beloved, it's beloved in many of the same ways that we discussed in 1 John, that John is writing to a congregation in Ephesus. Jude is first and foremost writing to a people that he's preaching to, that he's talking to, that he's loving, as I myself and Pastor Perkins are doing to you today. He says, Beloved, you ought to remember the words that were spoken. This is the next thing I want to draw attention to, not just that this is to the beloved, those who are called and loved and kept for Christ Jesus at his second coming, those who are preserved and kept in his righteousness. But that there's a charge here. You've been been given a command. Remember. Remember what? Well, Jude says, remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles. In a broader sense, we can say this. Remember the word of God. Remember the word of God because the word that was spoken beforehand by the apostles was the word of God and is the word of God. What words do we have from the apostles today? The words that are in our Bibles. Were those the only words that were spoken by the apostles? Certainly not. Certainly not. We recall how Paul commended those who received his word. He says, oh, how I am thankful, and this is paraphrasing, how I rejoice because when you received the words that were spoken to you, you didn't receive them as the words of men, but rather as it truly is, the words of the living God. When we consider the words today written, we receive them as the words of God. And I want to again elevate our understanding of the preached word today once more because as I was reading through that very helpful book, The Means of Grace, Green Pastures, which we have uh, recommended to you time and time before, there was someone in the Reformation period, it's his, name, his name is escaping me now, I don't think it was Calvin, might have been Bollinger, Heinrich Bollinger, who said something like this, and the preached word is the word of God. Now, we might stop and say, whoa, 
Are you saying that everything that is coming out of your mouth now and your hearing is the word of God? Well, rightfully understood, yes, as so far as it corresponds to the word of God and so far as God is doing something through the preached word that he's also doing when you read your Bibles alone at your homes. All of this is called the ministry of the word. And oh, how I appreciate the prayers of Pastor Perkins and the prayers that I recite before we come into the pulpit, that Lord, may that which corresponds to your word stick in the minds and the hearts of your people as you hear it. But whatever does not correspond, strike it from memory. I don't want anything that I say this morning that doesn't correspond to the revealed word of God to stick in your memory. All I want is for God's word to stick. And if my words that are paraphrased, that do not correspond one for one to what is written, but correspond to what God is saying in his word, if those stick with you, then you are receiving the word of God because that is the preached word. And yet, what do we have today from the apostles? Do we have the privilege of sitting in a congregation with the apostle Paul teaching us things that are not found in scripture? No, we don't. How about Jude? How about John? No. We do not have the apostolic word outside of scriptures. We do have the apostolic word in scriptures. And interestingly, Jude says that these apostolic words, that you are to remember that his congregation, those in the first hearing of this epistle, were to remember were words spoken beforehand. Words spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the third thing I want to look at in this first verse in this call, in this preface to the testimony that will follow. We've looked at beloved. We've looked at remember. Now I want to look at apostles. We've talked about apostles before. We talked about prophets not too long ago, about how there are no prophets as an office today. There is no one who can say to us, Oh, I've received a word from the Lord, and you ought to obey it as authoritative remember what i said about those who are prophets in the church today or so-called prophets in the church today who claim that they have that office you better write what they say in the backs of your bibles because it's as authoritative if they are indeed in the office of a prophet as the word preached the word heard from jude this morning But there are apostles in the church today. There are those who are sent ones. That's what the word apostle means, being someone who is sent. There are apostles in the church today. When you send a pastor to go plant a church, rightfully understood, he's an apostle. He's a sent one from a congregation. But I believe that Jude is not talking about apostles in the generic sense, just as when we said that there are prophets in the church today, those who preach the word of God, they're not prophets in the office in that strict sense, but they are prophets insofar as they share the word of God, like me this morning, prophesying from the pulpit. I believe that Jude is talking about those peculiar apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, those who were in the office of an apostle. 
So let us just remind ourselves in way of passing about the apostolic office and why it does not exist in the church anymore. And yet the apostles' teaching remains because they teach us even today from the pages of Scripture. John 20.21 talks about the calling. When Jesus is with his disciples who are now called apostles before he went to the cross and he says this to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. You see, right there we have this idea of sending. These apostles are the sent ones. And who sent the apostles? Our Lord Jesus Christ. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Oh, what rich truths are concealed in this very short statement. But what I want us to look at here is the calling that an apostle has. They are those who were sent specifically who were called specifically to this office. By who? By the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the qualifications of an apostle is that they must be sent and called specifically by the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles themselves recognized this when Judas Iscariot was disqualified. When Judas Judas Iscariot, that traitor who rose among their own number, we'll come back to that, betrayed them and the Lord. He was the original who denied the Master and Lord from among the own ranks. The, all, the original wolf in sheep's clothing as it concerned the twelve. And the apostles recognized that someone needs to take his place. And if you read the beginning of the book of Acts, you see how they understood it could not just be any man who was an apostle, but someone who was called by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there is an understanding in that section I'll just bring about by passing, where how did they recognize who Jesus was calling to take the place of Judas? They cast lots. Do you remember? And many think today that that was illegitimate. That Matthias, who won by lot, isn't actually a true apostle. Because the apostles in their foolishness chose to cast lots to see who took the place of Judas. Didn't they know that Jesus is the one who is to nominate and to ordain who the apostle should be? Is our understanding of how our Lord reigns in the church today so low that we would not consider that the Lord Jesus Christ was calling Matthias by way of Lot? Remember Jonah? When he says this statement, you can cast the Lot in the lap, but every decision, whether it's in our case, with the dice that we throw today, whether it's a two and a one, a six and a six, a four and a five, or a one and a one, every decision that those dice fall on is from the Lord, that he's decreed what numbers show up on those dice. Well, you say, yeah, but that's the Lord. The Lord is the sovereign one. 
The Lord is the one who decrees all things before they come to pass. The Lord is the one who does all things after the counsel of his will. I don't need to remind us all, brothers and sisters, that that Lord is Jesus. And when the apostles cast those lots, it was him deciding who took the place of Judas. Nevertheless, they were all called, every single one of the apostles. But they were not just called, they had a greatness. The apostles had a greatness that surpasses, brothers and sisters, even us. We might say, the apostles were just the first of the brothers and sisters in the church. And in a qualified way, we can say, yes, we are like the apostles in the sense that we're all justified by the same blood of Christ. The ground is level at the cross. Amen. But brothers and sisters, there is a greatness that surpasses the greatness that we have just by virtue of the apostolic office. Ephesians 3.10 says this. In fact, I want to turn there because I want to go back before the, uh, verse 10. So if you're able, turn to Ephesians 3. Pastor Perkins, I know you don't have to turn there because you memorized all of Ephesians. I look forward to your teaching in that um, next Lord's Day, Lord willing. Ephesians chapter 3. Listen to what Paul says, starting in verse 7. Of which I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me, according to the working of His power. I believe wrapped up in there, we have the apostolic office. It might not be exhausted there, but certainly that is the gift that was given to Paul. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and listen, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. To who? To the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Are you telling me that the angels are learning something from the apostolic office? Amen. Do you see the greatness of the office of apostle? Do you see the pride and the arrogance of someone who would call themselves an apostle, uppercase A, in the office today? Are you telling me that if you're an apostle like the apostle Paul, that angels are hanging on your every word to learn more about the God that they worship and serve or on the converse, the Lord that they hate, those angels who sinned? so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places? Oh, yes, brothers and sisters, there is greatness in the apostolic office. And therefore, there is also authority. An authority, Acts 1, 8, but you will receive power, Jesus says to them, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. When you hear that verse, you might be thinking of the Great Commission and you again, once again, might say, but I'm included in the Great Commission. And again, we can say yes and amen to that, but we must understand first and foremost that the Great great Commission was given to the apostles. When we hear that statement, go therefore into all the world, we've heard it over and over again. We're so conditioned to think that's us in the Great Commission, but brothers and sisters, in context, it's the apostles. That doesn't exclude us from that command. But the context is first and foremost to them. They have an authority in the church that we don't have. When I come before you on the Lord's Day, I don't open up my journal that I've been keeping all week and say, okay, brothers and sisters, I want to share with you my reflections on life today. No, I open up the scriptures, the apostolic doctrine, because there's an office of apostle, and that's next. 1 Corinthians 3.10. According to the grace of God which was given to me. Sounds a lot like Ephesians 3 that we just read, where Paul says the same thing. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. Now again, why are there no apostles in the church today? Because the apostles were the foundation that was laid And we are no longer laying that foundation. That foundation does not keep being laid. If you've, again, we use the illustration in in previous sermons that if you build a house, you don't just keep laying the foundation over and over and over and over. No, you lay a foundation and then you build upon it. And the the apostles and the prophets were the foundation of the church to be built upon. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians is talking about that apostolic office, which was a foundation. That as a master builder, he laid a foundation, and another is building on it. My prayer is that I am building upon that foundation. That Pastor Perkins is building upon that foundation. And if you read the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it is ministers of the gospel who are spoken of as laying upon that foundation. And that which is not laid that corresponds to the apostolic doctrine, which is hay and stubble, will be burnt up. But that which does correspond to the apostolic doctrine is like jewels. Again, we must rightly understand these verses in their context. By way of quick application, the Church of Rome twists this verse of 1 Corinthians 3.10. And they take it outside of the apostolic office and they say, no, this applies to every believer. And your work, if it's like hay and stubble, will be burnt up at the judgment. And you know what that's a proof text for in the book of Rome? Purgatory. If you ask a Roman Catholic, a knowledgeable one, 
an apologist and say, where does it show me in the Bible this idea of purgatory? They'll take you to 1 Corinthians 3.10 and say right there. See, it's burnt up. Your works are burnt up and you you'll be saved, but through fire. That's what purgatory is. The apostolic doctrine is no such thing. It has to do with the apostolic doctrine of laying a foundation and ministers of the gospel building upon it. You see, this is important because the Pope of Rome, as our confession calls him, that man of lawlessness who will be destroyed at the brightness of Christ's second coming, claims all of these prerogatives for himself. He claims to have this calling. He claims to have this greatness. He claims to have this authority. He claims to have this office. He claims to hold the keys. He claims all the three names of the Trinity for himself. Holy Father, another Christ, the vicar of Christ, which is the Holy Spirit. He blasphemes the church and sits in the so-called church, as Paul warned in his letter to the Thessalonians, that this man of lawlessness would seat himself in the temple of God. And so all these things have application to him, but ultimately every counterfeit that would enter the church that would claim the office of apostle or prophet. The office of apostle has ceased being the foundation which was already laid. So this is the preface. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. What were some of these? I'll try to sprinkle these in. What were some of these words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ? Turn with me if you're able. We'll look at one of them now to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, starting in chapter 3 of verse 1. Paul, the apostle, speaking to Timothy, who would be the pastor in the church of Ephesus. Paul's instructing him, his son in the faith, as he calls him. And he warns him. He warns him. He says this, Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But realize this. In the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And then Paul says, avoid such men. Avoid such men. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge 
of the truth. Brothers and sisters, we've seen this verse before. We've identified that these are men in the church. These are men in the church who have captivated young women, widows, weak women, weighed down with sins. These are unholy men without self-control. You start reading through that list and you say, this sounds like the list Jude gave of these men who had crept into the church. Paul was warning, saying, these men will come, Timothy. Jude is now saying to us, these men are, are here. These men are in the church now. As Isaiah said in Isaiah 8, 19, when they say to you, Consult the mediums and the spirits who whisper and mutter. When they say to you, I've had a dream, I have a vision, I'm a prophet, I'm I'm an apostle. Should not the people consult their God, says Isaiah? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? Something that they did often in the Old Testament. To the law and to the testimony, Isaiah reminds us. If they do not speak according to this word, It is because they have no light. So what is the standard? What is the standard to the law and to the testimony? And if they do not speak according to this word, brothers and sisters, if I do not speak according to this word, may it be stricken from your memories. Because light comes from the word of God and from his voice. We are commanded to listen to what God has spoken. God surely has spoken in his word. We started out by identifying how great it is that God has given us his word. He is a God who is not silent. But, he, but only he who loves God and is beloved by God listens to God in his word and believes it. Those who are not beloved by God can hear God's word. By the common grace that is given to them, they may even have insight into God's word. But they cannot believe it unto the salvation of their souls. But we, beloved, are called to remember what God has spoken. I'm reminded by, again, the words from the song we sang this morning. Great things he has taught us. Great things he has done. Where do we learn about the great things God has done? Well, certainly in Scripture. The psalmist says, oh, how I will recall the great wonders of my God and teach them to my children. Great things he has taught us, great things he has done. But then the refrain of the same song. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Again, how we love the word of God and how we hold the word of God up to be infallible, inerrant, and a precious treasure. But is that the only place God has spoken? Do not the scriptures say that 
day-to-day pourth for's speech. The heavens declare the glory of God. Yes, God has surely spoken in His Word, but God has also surely spoken in nature. But whereas the first, where God has spoken in His Word, is only listened to and believed by His people, isn't it interesting that what God has spoken in nature is often understood by people who are outside of the church? When we see the world around us that is on fire, that is spiraling down and down and down into depravity, when we hear such egregious and unthinkable uh, claims concerning morality, and we say, there are many people that I know who say that this is crazy, and they're not Christians. There are many people that I know that I work with, who I have conversations with, who say, yeah, 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 I'm right on board with you when you talk about the, dep- the, the, the disgustingness of our culture today. And yet they do not believe what God has written in his word. And we say, how is that possible? How is it possible? Because they are made in the image of God, living in God's world, and God has given a measure of common grace to all of us. There's a recovery happening today of what natural theology is, what natural revelation is. And there's a caricature that those who are affirming a natural revelation that God has spoken in nature are somehow denying His Word, somehow diminishing it. May it never be. Our own confession talks about the written Word of God and the spoken word of God in nature. You may have heard the saying before that God has two books. Indeed, he does. And as believers, we are better equipped to understand both of those books than the unbeliever who does not have the Spirit. For he is the inward teacher who helps us to understand both books. The book of Scripture and the book of nature. That was all prefaced to the claim. The claim is what comes next. What were these apostles saying? I already read from 2 Timothy. But they were saying to you, says Jude, verse 18, the testimony itself, the claim, that they were saying to you, this is what you should remember, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. Here we have the manner of time and the manner of persons. First, the manner of time. When, according to the testimony, in the last time. You recall in 2 Timothy, this is exactly what he says to Timothy. Timothy 2 Timothy 3.1. But realize this, Timothy, that in the last days, in the last time, difficult times will come. The Apostle John said something very similar. That in the last days, Antichrist will come. You have heard this. It's a common doctrine. We've all, all of us apostles have been teaching this. You're not surprised when I tell you that Antichrist is coming. In the last days, the man of lawlessness would arise. 
So first we have the manner of time, in the last time. These are the last days. What are the last days? It's that time from the ascension of Christ to his second coming. From the ascension of Christ to his second coming. Do you mean to tell me that they were in the last days then? Absolutely. Are we in the last days now? Absolutely. So the last days is not a singular day? No, it's plural. The last days. It's not that day of the Lord, which we spoke about last week when the Lord Jesus comes with myriads of his angels. That is the last day, the day of the Lord. But the last days are that time from the ascension of Christ to his second coming. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for your instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The ends of the ages have come upon us, brothers and sisters. But they also came upon those in the first century. Because it's upon all who live during that time after the ascension, and before the second coming of Christ. There's a theological reason to understand the last days as meaning this as well, a covenantal and historical redemption. Think about Galatians chapter 4 when Paul says this, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. If I said to you, when does the fullness of time come? You might say, well, the fullness of time comes at the end of redemptive history when Christ returns. Yes, that's a way to understand the day of the Lord. But the last times are here now. For when the fullness of time came, past tense from when Paul is writing, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. As I've been reminded this week, again, that should point us back to Genesis, back to the promise of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. That promise which our first parents were waiting for, a savior, that promise then that was moved along by further steps throughout the whole Old Testament, waiting for that Messiah, for that seed of the woman that would come. Oh, when will he come? Paul says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Right there we should think of Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent is Christ. Born of a woman, born under the law. And there were covenants that unfolded. There was the covenant of works in the garden. Then the Abrahamic covenant, which was actually preceded by the Noahic covenant. And then after the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And then the Davidic covenant. And you see, God is making covenants throughout redemptive history, all culminating in what covenant, brothers and sisters? What, was all, what were all those covenants preparing the way for? The new covenant the covenant of grace. Are there any covenants after that? No. Because the fullness of time has already come. 
the last days have begun because this final covenant, the covenant of grace, which was prepared through all the other covenants, has been ratified in the blood of our Savior. And during this time, mockers would come. The apostles taught this. This is the claim. In the last days, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. You don't need to turn there, but Second Peter, our parallel text, says this. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. Just in the first century? How about the third? How about the sixth? How about the eighth? How about the 1800s? How about 1920? How about 1999 when I graduated high school? How about 2022? Yes is the answer. In the last days, the time between the ascension of Christ and the second coming, mockers will come with their mocking. Have you experienced it? Have you heard it? I have. Following after their own lusts. In Peter's day, the apostle, he says this. They'll say things like, where is the promise of his coming? The second coming. Forever since the fathers fell asleep. Sounds like a Jew who's saying this. The fathers would be the patriarchs. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, Peter says, it escapes their notice that the word of God, by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Well, how would the Jew know that? From the Old Testament from the Old Testament. What were they not paying attention to? The Word of God. This is what Peter says. It escapes their notice that by the Word of God, the heavens existed long ago. And by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. Do you see why Jude says to us, brothers and sisters, remember? These mockers had forgotten. Have you forgotten? May it never be. This is the manner of these persons. They're mockers. They do not remember what God has written or they don't care. They're ungodly men. They're mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. Ungodly, the opposite of spiritual. Jude is going to say that they're without the spirit, which makes sense. If they're following after their own ungodly lusts, they're walking according to the flesh and not the spirit. They're like unreasoning animals, Jude has already said in verse 10. They turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. Verse 4, these are mockers, ungodly men. And they were prophesied by the apostles to rise among the own, rise among the flock. Paul says in Acts 20, we've been here before, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on alert, 
listen, remembering that day and night for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Nothing about the word of God, Paul. Verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Oh, how we love and need the word of God. Why? Because there are counterfeits. There are counterfeits. Look at the last heading, verse 19. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, and are devoid of the Spirit. By the time we get to the testimony amplified, it makes more sense. Of course they're devoid of the Spirit because they're not walking after the Spirit. They're walking after their own lusts. They cause divisions, therefore, drawing others after themselves, what the apostle said in Acts 20. They're going to draw people in the church to themselves away from the apostolic teaching. They're worldly-minded, and they're devoid of the Spirit. Here's the application I want to make as we consider this counterfeit. Why is there a counterfeit in the first place? Because there's a genuine. There is an authentic ministry, an authentic teaching, an authentic office, and it's that of the apostles. And because there is a genuine apostolic office, it stands to reason that there must be, until Christ returns, a counterfeit. How are you to test the counterfeit? I often use this illustration. I'm sure it's not the first time I have, and it's probably not going to be the last. But we all are familiar, at least with the, the understanding or the, um, the, the idea of counterfeit money. And if I gave to you five counterfeit $100 bills and they all look different, how are you to determine which one is the right one? If I said, you know what, if you guess the right one, you can keep it. How are you to determine which is the right $100 bill? You know that there's counterfeits. I've, I'm telling you as much. How do you test it? The only way that you can test to see what the true $100 bill is, is by knowing what a real $100 bill looks like. Amen? How would you know? If I gave you, here's, here's one, if I gave you a euro, I think some of us might be familiar with euros, so maybe that's not a good one. What if I gave you a currency, I'll use before the euro, because I'm familiar with this, the lira. The lira is an Italian dollar bill, and it's a high currency bill. And you have no idea what a true lira looks like. You might say, well, I have five liras in front of me. The best I can do is make a guess. But if you knew what a real lira looked like, if you knew what a real $100 bill looked like, you can then say, oh, I just compare what I'm looking at with what is before me now. Brothers and sisters, if you don't know, and children who gather with us, if you don't know what the Word of God says, how are you to test when someone tells you, oh, this is what the Word of God teaches, take my word for it. How are you to know if they're telling the truth or not? Only if you know what the Word of God teaches. Because there are counterfeits in the church. 
Why? Because there is a genuine in the church. I want to conclude with 2 Peter. Turn there in your Bibles. This will be our last consideration. 2 Peter chapter 3. I think Peter is going to be saying many similar things here as Jude says to us today and will be saying to us in the weeks that follow. 2 Peter chapter 3. Therefore, beloved. See, we're already primed to understand who Peter's writing to and the depth of doctrine that lies behind it. Those who are loved by God and kept by God. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you apostolic doctrine. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, and which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men. These are the men who I think Jude is speaking of. And fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do you do that? The ministry of the word. Whether it be from our scriptures. Whether it be from the preached word. Don't tune out during the sermons. Don't put away your scriptures until you come here on the Lord's day. Let the ministry of the word wash over you every day. Not to gain some standing or justification or pleasure from God, but to be protected and to grow. Peter says, To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It also, Lord, protects us. It protects us from those counterfeits who are among us as thorns and thistles, not only in this world, but in the church. Lord, give us the grace and the wisdom to treasure and to store up your word in our hearts so that we may not sin against you, but also that we may not be carried away by every wind of doctrine again in the church. Oh, Lord, let us test ourselves according to your word so that we may may be confident that we are in the faith. And Lord, when we are weak, strengthen us by the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, and his account credited to our behalf, knowing that when we fail and when we are unfaithful, he has loved us like the apostles to the very end, until that day of eternity when he comes with a myriad of his holy ones. Until that day, love us and keep us and guard us by your spirit and your word of truth. In Christ's name, we ask and pray these things and we all say, amen.